From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 380. Today's show is brought to you by Amazon Music, Capital One, and Hunter Douglas. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. What's in your wallet, Mike? <laughs> we'll find out later on in the episode. You just wanted to say it, but I get to say it later on. I did want to say it, and Upgrade Plus people won't, won't hear your delight in being able to say it, so I thought I'd bring mm-hmm. it up to the Capital Ones. You get to be Samuel L. Jackson for a minute. It's very mm-hmm. exciting. I have a hashtag Snell Talk question for you. It comes from Zach, and Zach wants to know. So this is follow-up from last week. So last week's Snell Talk question, right, was how long do you give it before you get rid of a book? You yeah. know, if you're not enjoying it, Zach wants to know how long do you give a TV show before you'll bail on it? It really depends. This is a great question, but I don't have a hard and fast answer here. Um, I am guided in part by, like, reviews, mm-hmm. whether it's from TV critics or from uh, friends. Uh, sometimes... Like, I, I'm not a fan of the idea that you have to wait until episode five until it really gets good because you're like, I don't want to sit through four episodes where it's not good just to get to where the good part is. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. And yet, if I get that impression from people like, this is really good, you need to, you just need to kind of like give it, be patient a little bit. I'm willing to give something a little more uh, slack. I would say traditionally, it's all about the second episode. I used to talk about this on TV Talk Machine uh, podcast all the time. That like I always think that episode two of a show is the most important episode of a show because the first episode is you may decide it's not for you right away, but it's it's usually I mean this is less true now than it used to be, but it used to be the pilot episode, so it was sort of like the setting the premise of what the show was going to be, which meant that the first episode wasn't really representative of what the show was going to be because they needed to set up because they could also be like these self-contained things, right? Like that just go out and that's it. I mean, in some instances, because they, they well, they only go. shoot the one. And mm-hmm. then they wait. Uh, traditionally, they only shoot the one episode, and then they wait like six months to get approval to go shoot more. And then they have to shoot, you know, the rest of the season. And so, episode one isn't always representative. So, if I really get turned off by a first episode, and modern shows are are less like this, like I said, but if I'm really turned off by the first episode, I will uh, bail. But I feel like the second episode is often the the crucible. Um, for a, a TV show, because if the second episode where they've gotten a chance to get the band back together, if it's a traditional pilot, um, then you'll know uh, whether it's for you or not. In a lot of cases, when um, back in the day when I had a DVR, I thought the most telling thing was um, I would always set the shows to record the whole show when I said when a new show was coming on that I was interested in, because the last thing you want to do is not get around to episode one to decide if you like it or not. <laughs> And then episode two airs. And so now if you watch episode one, you can't watch episode two because it already aired back in the day. Um, but the, the telling thing is when you abandon the show and the episodes start to pile up. And that doesn't mean you actually decided you, to dump that show, but uh, you haven't gone further. And I guess the equivalent today would be you end up in the situation where you you are an episode or two into a show. And it may even be in the like upcoming um, in the TV app. And it just gets further to the right and further to the right because you're not motivated to go back to it. And that, that, so a lot of TV shows self cancel, Zach, is what I'm saying is a lot of stuff, it really just comes down to there's so much out there. And if I don't ever think I'm in the mood for that show, then there goes that show. It's gone. But, um, there's usually a, a moment where you, you either buy in or get out. And that, that's definitely happened to me. Um, on some shows where sometimes it's just a lack of enthusiasm, but other times it is literally like, Oh no, I, 
Um, I just did that with, uh, what was it called? Uh, Home Before Dark, Back Before Dark, that show about the little girl who solves crimes on Apple TV+. And I, I didn't like the first episode, but I watched the second episode, and the second episode made me angry. And I was like, oh, I can't watch this show anymore. I need to stop watching this show. So you, you got to listen to the universe when it tells you nobody's, nobody's giving you points for watching something you don't like. You got to get out of there. If you'd like to send in a hashtag SnowTalk question, you can do so by sending out a tweet with the hashtag SnowTalk or using question mark SnowTalk in the RelayFM members' Discord. I should just note before we continue, because people will always ask, Jason is not recording at home today. I'm not. I'm in, I'm in the desert location. So, uh, yes, using a MacBook Pro, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I am uh, I'm not at home today. So, yes, thank you for your concern. You wrote a really great post and put together some wonderful charts and six colors uh, in the last week, kind of in uh, review of Apple completing their fiscal year. You know, we spoke about Apple earnings last week, but kind of looking at the last, how many years did you look at over this period? Like the last Oh, 10, I've got 11? data back to like 1999 for some stuff. Okay. So, so some 20 something years in some cases. And then in terms of Apple's product lines since the, you know, the Mac since the 90s and the iPhone since basically right after it started and likewise for the iPad. So there's some really like kind of fascinating stuff in here. I, I recommend people go look at the entire and re- look at all the charts and read the whole article. But there are a couple of things that were just wild to me. So one of them is, you know, like we look at quarter to quarter and we compare quarter to quarter. Right. right. But when you look at the entire year encapsulated, 2021 was unbelievable for Apple in terms of revenue. Mm hmm. It was like, you know, up, down, up, down, a little bit here and there, kind of like in the 200 range since 2014, like 200 to 300 uh, billion, right? Billion, yes, uh, in the year. Mm-hmm. And then this year, it was just shot up to 366. I think looking at this chart, it's the largest year-over-year revenue jump uh, like from a full year to full year that Apple's ever had, it looks like in terms of in terms of dollars, yes. In terms of percent, no, because the rocket ship really did take off between mm-hmm. uh, two thousand, like two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Because yeah. like they went from like sixty five to one hundred and eight, right? <laughs> so like, yeah, in two thousand nine, <laughs> Apple made forty three billion dollars. In two thousand twelve, it made one hundred and fifty seven billion dollars. So yeah. like in a very short amount of time, it shot up really fast. Um, and and uh, there was another big bump in 2015. But uh, in terms of pure numbers, and like you look at the chart, and it's sort of like Apple's just very slowly going up, and then it goes up real fast. Uh, and then it goes, this last year, it goes up way faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's probably not, uh, that rate of growth is not going to sustain. But it, oh, no. uh, if, if it's like previous stuff with Apple, it, it's not as likely to come back to earth as it is to then sort of plateau at that new high level right where mm-hmm. it's it's gone from being 200 something so the last six years was 200 something billion dollars in revenue and now we had a 366 billion dollar year well i think it's it would not be surprising at all if the next five years were all sort of 300 something billion in revenue. yeah but the expectation looking at the data that you have is that it will probably be smaller in 2022 you know, maybe down to 320, 
330 we, we don't like know that. i mean 300 something right it's mm-hmm. not necessarily all the way up but uh but yeah that there's some feeling that probably some future sales got pulled into fiscal 21 um but then again there was feeling that future sales got pulled into fiscal 22 and yet 21 is that much better so uh but yeah it's possible that if you put covid and apple silicon together you've got a and throw in a uh, redesign physical redesign of of hardware for, mm-hmm. uh, for the iphone uh, that you may have uh, a pretty remarkable year and that the next few years are going to be lower because so many products that might have been deferred and purchased in 22 or 23 or 24 all got pulled back into 21 for one reason or another. But your iPhone chart shows, <laughs> you know, the iPhone chart shows the iPhone 6, the iPhone 10, and the iPhone 12, all big redesigns. You see it. You see. You can see. see we talk picks. about seasonality, and we mm-hmm. talk about like the holiday quarter. But here, on an annual scale, you can see this sort of iPhone seasonality, re- which is the redesign year. And you see the spikes. There's 2015 spikes, 2018 spikes, and 2021 spikes. And that's all hardware redesigns of the iPhone driving a new wave of iPhone sales. And 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 then the level stays high, but you can see. That spike that is the year that they changed the look of the iPhone. Yep. And then there's a Mac chart. And I want you to, I want to see if I can get your help on this because from 97 to 2006, it's kind of in the three to $5 billion a year range. Yeah. Then from 2007 up to 2011, it just steadily increases to the 20 something range. Is this the iPhone that did this for the Mac? I think it's a couple of different things right so it's um it's the ipod halo effect which starts in the early 2000s and -hmm. then continues to accelerate so you've got the uh people who've never bought an apple product before but they buy an ipod and they really like it and apple retail is out there too and so people are able to see apple products for the first time maybe in their lives because they just haven't been around macs before um, because the Macs are so uh, such a niche computer product at this point. And they have an affinity for the Apple brand now because they like their iPod, and the Apple Store is right there, and they've heard that, you know, oh, Apple also makes a computer, and maybe they knew it. Um, also, it's the web is more um, more relevant at this point, so fewer people say I can't buy a Mac because right. of PC, hard, PC software that I need. Um, the Intel transition then happens in 2005, 2006, which means there is a whole group of people who are Mac hesitant because what if I need this Windows app that I occasionally use? And so a whole bunch of people buy Macs in that era, along with a copy of VMware or Parallels and a Windows XP virtual machine, which was a very popular thing to do in that era. My uncle did that. My uncle had always used a PC and he bought a Mac and we set him up with um, with Parallels and Windows for the one app that he used on. And you know what? He never used it and uh, it, it became irrelevant, but it yeah. got him to buy the Mac and then they've had a Mac ever since. So I, th- I feel like... Uh, iPod Halo effect, Intel transition, and then the iPhone comes in, and the iPhone is just doing what the uh, what the um, iPod Halo effect did again, which is get more products from Apple in the hands of people who had never used an Apple computer before, or maybe hadn't in a long time. And once you're in the family and you're going to the Apple store, and of course across this time, the need to use Windows software is not only can you virtualize it, but it's decreasing because more and more stuff is on the web or there's a Mac version of it, but a lot of it is just about the web. 
you put all that together and the barriers come down. And I think that that's why there's that moment in like 2000. It it looks like not a lot happens between 2004 and 2005, but it did go from three to five billion that year, right? Yeah, yeah. And it never came back down. But it was also five in 2000, you know, like it, right. it, it kind of jumps around a little bit. Right. But then it's five, five, seven, 10, 14, 17, 22, right? Like, it's like well, okay, uh, the Mac business... Uh, what quadruples in six years? Yeah, it's yeah, and now and it's gone kind from of there. Like, yeah, we're like twenty two to twenty six, and then it goes like you know that's kind of it's like from this is from the year twenty eleven to twenty twenty nineteen. It's from like twenty two to twenty six billion. It goes up and down, um, and yeah. then twenty nine twenty twenty was twenty nine billion. So twenty twenty one is thirty five. So the last time I did these charts was New Year's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be a good time to look back on Apple's last decade, but I chose the fiscal year and not the not the the calendar year for that. Even though I did the the story in the beginning of January or end of December, um, so the last two years weren't in those charts. So I revisited those charts because I thought, okay, well the fiscal year's over. Let's look at the fis- the year by year charts. And it's really funny because I wrote at the time in, in January 2020. I said. The Mac's been kind of sort of sedate in the in the decade of the 2020s. It had that huge growth spurt in the in the 2000s or in the decade of the 2010s, right? So mm-hmm. it's huge growth spurt in the 2000s, and uh, that took it. So 2010, you're at 17, and then it goes up to 22 billion in 2011. But then in the 2010s, it just kind of goes around, kicks around in the 20s. It, it 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 exits the decade at 26, but it's like 22, 23, 21, 24, 25, right? It's just, it, it, it had this huge growth to go from 3 billion a year up to the 20s, but that was all sort of in the previous decade. And in the 2010s, it grew, but it was, it was pretty kind of sedate. And that was my take in January of 2020. Um, <laughs> but in in 2020 fiscal, it went to 29 billion, mm-hmm. and then it went to 35 in 21. So this the it, uh, who knows where it's going to go from here. But the sedate it, hanging around in the 20s of the last decade, I think, pushed by the Apple Silicon move and COVID again. Yeah, but it has. Uh, it has sent the Mac to what Apple said um, we talked about a couple weeks ago, which is it's the four best quarters of Mac sales ever were the last four. The iPad chart gave me a statistic that I didn't know until I saw this chart. Do you like roller coasters, Mike? I love roller coasters. (laughs) Up, 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 wee, down, back up. Obviously, we knew that the iPad was just having a great year, right? The quarter of a quarter is always great. But this year, 2021, is the biggest year of iPad revenue of all time. And... I didn't expect that that was mm. the case. I'd still assumed that those monster years between 2012 and 2014, they still hadn't beat those. We we went eight, eight years, right, where mm-hmm. we were talking about how the we were living in a world where the iPad was down from its previous high. Because yep. <laughs> it was 2013 when it hit $31 billion. So it, we And we had that period of, what, one, two, three, four, five straight years where it was down every year. Mm-hmm. And so it, we, we really got in this mindset of like, well, the iPad's doing better. Remember when we were waiting around for a sign that the iPad was doing yeah. better on this very podcast take for anything, quite a while? Anything we and, would take. And then, but but it turned it around. 2018 really kind of was the low, and then it's come up the last three years. Um, and that's good, but it was always still kind of the narrative was the iPad was fast out of the gate, and then it kind of uh, cooled off, 
and now it's trying to find its way to a new place. Mm-hmm. Um, but 2021 fiscal was the iPad's best year ever. It was 32 billion, so it was more than the 31 billion in 2013. It was the iPad is you know we're back. Never say what the future holds, but right now 2021 is peak iPad, which you know again for eight years that was not the story with the iPad. So the iPad has kind of gotten back to where it was in that really hot first couple of years of its existence. And then the last thing that I kind of noted was just the rocket ship of services. It's like, it's on Mm. this trajectory where, I don't know, like I feel like maybe, I don't know what's going to happen next, but you know, we spoke about this last time, like could, could services touch iPhone revenue? And there's no way to know for sure, but it, you know, you look at the charts, you've got like an annual revenue by product line. It's the only one that seems like it could if, if it was going to happen. Yeah, it, it's uh, quite a thing to look at it and see how services continues to grow and how impressive the growth has been in the wearables category, but how still, <laughs> still services just yep. keeps climbing. And my last chart is the one that I have fun doing because I put them, I chart them all together. And it's this ridiculously tall graph because otherwise you can't see the others because of the iPhone. Um, but the services, if you look at that graph, you're like, oh, services is, you know, it's it's the services has lifted up above the other three categories. Let's put it that way. And now it is in the great void between all of Apple's other product product categories and the iPhone. And it's it's kind of charting its own course in there. And that's pretty impressive, actually, given given everything. Because all of these other products, um, you know, like Mac and iPad, like we'll find out if and maybe even iPhone if they're going to dip a little bit, right? But like sales right. could dip. But the way that services works, it's unlikely. It's incredibly unlikely that next no, year will on. be less than sixty-eight, right? Like it's that you would require like millions of people, millions of people to, mm. to cancel their subscriptions, right? Which which is unlikely to occur. It's not. It, no, that's that's uh, there's churn, but mm-hmm. it's unlikely that everybody's going to abandon Apple services on mass and mm-hmm. so it will keep uh, jumping away also there's nothing like putting everything in perspective all of the praise we just gave to the mac and the ipad and then you see it on this chart and you see that you know the ipad at 32 all-time high and the mac at 35 all-time high Hoff. and then and then and then there's wearables <laughs> at 38 so they're already the wearables <laughs> category is already bigger than the mac Which? and the ipad and then there's services at 68 and then there's the iphone way up there where you can't even see it so it does and this is why we talk about the mac business and the ipad business separately because they are big businesses that should not be discounted but let's keep in mind also that uh put together they're about what services is and I'm, I'm, you know, like I really wish they would break it out. I wish they would do a headphones category, because I would be, ve- I'm very confident that the vast majority of that wearables category is AirPods, right? And when you think about like the Mac and the iPod, I- iPads, like oh, these, you know, we love these. We talk about them all the time. Mm-hmm. But they, they could, they could be getting beat out by AirPods, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I, I think, I think, who knows? My just off the top of my head, my guess is that it's probably. Um, you know, twenty billion in AirPods and fifteen billion in Apple Watch, or maybe yep. it's the maybe it's reversed. Um, I think it's smart of them to put them together because they, I mean, obviously it's worked for them. They've created a category that's roughly the size, at least for now, of the Mac and the iPod and it's, or I, sorry, iPad, and it's got other stuff in there. 
Um, guaranteed, by the way, if you ever mention the iPod on a podcast, you will say iPod for iPad later or iPad for iPod. It yeah, just, I just did it. Mm-hmm. Once you break the seal mm-hmm. on the iPod, it ruins everything. Anyway, mm-hmm. thanks, iPod Halo Effect. Your Halo continues in podcasters saying the wrong words. So yeah, it's bundling the wearables all together is smart for them because it's creating a box that's about the size of the Mac box and the iPad box. But you're right, I do wonder, and the analysts will tell you like their estimates about how AirPods are doing and how Apple Watch is doing. Um, but uh, we don't get to see that in the numbers. They 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 have cleverly, it, they would those businesses would need to get a lot bigger for them to have to break them out. They, and obviously they would prefer not to. I feel like unit sales wise for the company, it probably goes iPhone and then AirPods. And maybe depending on the quarter, that could flip around, would be my feeling. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. And because then, and then iPad, else, because right? iPads are, have, a, have a lower revenue per unit than the yep. Mac does. I mean, look, well, like uh, AirPods are like between $100 and $200, right? So it's like exactly. the cheapest dish product. And to get to $38 billion, I mean, because look, there is a there is a cap. I feel like there is a much stronger cap right now on what the Apple Watch can do. Even though they still, I bet the Apple Watch continues to grow and grow and grow. Yeah. You know, but I feel like AirPods is not as much. And its revenue per unit is a lot higher than AirPods. Mm-hmm. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to do that way. And that's the same with the Mac, right? Like they don't sell as many Macs as they do yep. uh, iPads, but... <laughs> but they, they cost more, so mm-hmm. that's pretty good. This is a really great thing. You should do this every year. Thank you. Yeah, I, I will. I mean, I, I should have done it last year. And uh, Was anything happening to distract us last year? Uh-huh. So, uh, But I was. Uh, that was a fun thing to do, and I will try to do the yearly wrap-up from now on. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music. Look, you're listening to the show, so you love podcasts. You'll find tons of binge-worthy podcasts on Amazon Music, including this very show itself. Amazon Music has more than 10 million free podcast episodes for you to listen to. You can listen to the hilarious podcast Smartless one week before everyone else and ad-free. And the true crime podcast Dr. Death Miracle Man is available two weeks early on Amazon Music as well. But Amazon Music isn't just for listening to podcasts. There are thousands of, you guessed it, music stations and top playlists to stream for free. No matter what you're listening to, you can go hands-free with Alexa. And if you want your music on demand and ad-free, Free, you have to try Amazon Music Unlimited. That gives you unlimited access to over 75 million songs, as well as podcasts, music videos, and more. With Amazon Music Unlimited, you can listen to any song anywhere offline with unlimited skips. What I love about podcasts myself is that no matter what my listening habits are at that moment, there's always something new to find, right? I can sometimes will be on a real binge on a certain show. Like I've been listening to uh, Talking Sopranos recently, which I've been enjoying a lot. Like I'm just going through the whole back catalog. Or I, then I have my weekly tech shows. I can maybe go and check out some D&D podcasts. It doesn't matter what I want. I can just go in and find it. I love listening to podcasts all the time, wherever I am. So having an app in my pocket opens the world to me for whatever I want to listen to. And all of my favorites are available in Amazon Music. The app is really easy to use, and you can very easily listen to your podcast wherever you want. If you've never tried out Amazon Music Unlimited, now's a great time. Because for a limited time, new customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free for three months. With no credit card required, just go to Amazon.com slash UpgradeFM. That's Amazon.com slash UpgradeFM to try Amazon Music Unlimited free for three months. So once again, go to amazon.com slash upgradefm. Renews automatically cancel anytime. Terms apply. Our thanks to Amazon Music for their support of this show and all of Relay FM.
So let's do some upstream headlines. We've got a few things going on uh, with Apple TV Plus that I wanted to touch on. So mm-hmm. John Skipper and Dan Libertard. Libertard. Dan Levitard. So these are, let me, let me, let me explain who Please these guys help. are. So Dan Levitard was a radio host, uh, and he did a very popular, uh, like radio show that was simulcast on ESPN and uh, they had a podcast and all this stuff that, uh, Dan Levitard did. And, um, he was inter, I'll, I'll do the short version, but he was basically interfered with by ESPN and felt like ESPN didn't appreciate the work that he was doing. Hmm. Um, and at one point, they wanted him like ESPN laid off his assistant um, and he personally rehired the assistant and paid the assistant himself. Oh boy. Because he felt he was like, no, you're not going to take my person away from me. That's not a good working relationship. (laughs) No. And so what, what happened uh, shortly thereafter is that uh, he, he left ESPN. Mm -hmm. Um, John Skipper used to run ESPN. (laughs) So they got the band back together. John Skipper, basically he's a, an executive and uh, generally thought of as a very smart executive. And Skipper and Levitard basically got together and said, hey, digital media, let's do this. Let's make a company. And they created Meadowlark Media, which is which is where his show is, and they're doing a bunch of different podcasts there. One of my favorite podcasts, The Podcast with Joe Posnanski and Mike Schur, is now a Meadowlark uh, podcast. And they're building... A content, a digital content company that they control. So it's a guy who was one of the people who ran ESPN for a long time, and they are a kind of sports, but also other culture kind of stuff uh, company. Um, and they're going out on their own because they are tired of, you know, they were tired of the interference at ESPN and thought we can do this ourselves. It sounds real familiar, but this <laughs> is somebody who's coming from a, you know, a pretty big place in uh, in traditional media. And uh, they didn't like how they were being treated, so they they went and they did a new thing, and that's what this is. And now you can tell people what uh, the Apple part of this story. Uh, they have now got a first look deal with Apple for documentary and unscripted series. So you would assume sports related. They have, that is sure. been said, but you would naturally assume it would be sports related content. Um, so sports documentaries and unscripted series for Apple. Yeah, I, and I wonder. It, 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 this is really interesting because it's first look, which means that if Apple says no, they Somebody can take can it elsewhere. Take it. Yep. But they they get the first look on it. And um, I think that this company may do some interesting things. We know Apple is sort of interested in sports. That you know, Apple wants to span a whole bunch of different demographics with their stuff. That's why they got kids programming. They got adult programming. They got all sorts of stuff that they're doing. They're looking at sports in various ways. This gives them another kind of connection to people who are savvy about sports. I wonder if one of the reasons that they were interested in making this deal is to be you know to be able to talk to john skipper about strategy a little bit um it's not a bad deal to sign and i i like i like these well, guys it's like yeah. their, their their partnership with the hbo guy what's his name uh oh uh, richard plepler plepler right you've got to yeah. assume this is a similar thing right where mm-hmm. it's like we will uh do a first look deal with you you know anything you want to bring in like the john stewart thing was a part of it um but you've got to assume for Apple, it's like we want to have these people in our Rolodex. Yeah, it, exactly. I was trying to avoid the Rolodex metaphor no earlier, but that's exactly like in my what, contacts app, that, which yeah, doesn't sync properly right. with iCloud. But that's exactly what I mean. Is it is old school in a way of sort of relationship building, but in a way where it's like basically they're like we want Metalark on our team, and we may not say yes to every project, but like we want them to develop projects 
with us in mind, basically, mm-hmm. as the as their partner and make deals with with good people. And I would say that these uh, these guys seem, at least from what I've seen, to be in the good people in sports media category. And let me tell you, there are not a lot of those people. <laughs> there's a lot of there's that. a lot of unpleasant people in sports media, and there's also a lot of uh, like gambling money stuff in sports media these days. And so I think this is interesting in the sense that this is an independent media company and Apple TV, uh, you know, presumably Apple is, it's a different business model. Um, so who knows what will come out of this, but I think it's a really interesting partnership for them. Uh, and I love the story of how metal art got founded. Um, because it, it has resonance with the kind of stuff that people we know, including us have gone through, uh, with this added level of drama, of being kind of treated poorly by your big media employer and just deciding um, I'm out of here and I'm taking my audience with me, which is a, a fun one. So it's not just sports. Apple seems to be on a bit of a kick with uh, documentary and unscripted stuff. Another thing that they've done, along with the many things they're doing, they just signed a deal with Eugene Levy to host a travel mm. documentary series. Um, it's coming. To, it's it's called the Reluctant Traveler. Uh, it reminds me very much uh, of the show that, oh, the Ricky Gervais's previous. Oh yeah, yeah, with, with Carl Pil- Carl Pilkington's Carl show, right? Yeah, Idiot Sounds Abroad, like yeah. That, where Levy is basically not a not a very good traveler, and he's going to travel around the world to interesting places, and because he's like the idea is he wants to broaden his horizons. It's kind of like right. the pitch of the show. Uh, I mean, honestly, I'm just super into this. This just sounds great. Like, I love Eugene Levy. I bet it'd be hilarious. Yeah. Like, I, I really love the idea of this show, and I'm looking forward to it. It's a great idea. The way they describe it is brilliant in, in the article that I read about it, which is mm-hmm. uh, he travels to various hotels around the world mm-hmm. and then explores the area around the hotels. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, that is the way to describe a show about a reluctant traveler. It's yep. like, look... W- the, you'll be in the hotel. It's okay. <laughs> and then we'll explore. <laughs> you won't like, have okay. to go too far. <laughs> right. You can always go back to the hotel and get food you understand if you really are desperate. But yeah. why don't we try this other food? So, yeah, that's uh, that's fun. And again, all of Apple TV's like, this is just, it's making relationships with people you want to be in business with. It's a very interesting thing to see them build this this business. Yeah, I think everyone wants a piece of the Levy business right now. And so trying to yeah. get into that is good, right? And, and I feel like at the moment, Dan Levy has something like this too, kind of like where it's people will take whatever they want, right? Whatever Eugene and Dan Levy want to do right now, like people will take it because I w- somebody wants the next Shit's Creek, you know? Somebody should really just get everybody uh, who's involved with SCTV uh, back in the day to do projects, right? Like, let's just roll mm-hmm. this out. It's not just Eugene Levy, but let's get Catherine O'Hara and mm-hmm. Rick Moranis and Andrea Martin. And is Joe Flaherty available for something? I just watched the whole season of uh, Freaks and Geeks again for an incomparable episode that we posted this weekend. And, uh, I mean, he's 80 now, but, you know, they're they're not, none of them are, are spring chickens. Uh, Eugene Levy's not a spring chicken, but like get them all out there. They're all so great. Mm-hmm. And now is, apparently now is their time late in life to be stars again. So get, get Joe Flaherty out there too with Eugene. They can go on, they can go on trips together. together. Let's do that. Let's do that. Last week, Apple debuted its first kind of standalone original podcast series. It's called Hooked. 
It is a nine-part true crime series, of course. Uh, It's available in the Apple Podcast app, but also via an RSS feed provided by Art19. They're like a hosting platform. It seems to be where Apple hosts all its stuff, but they have an RSS feed. It's just available. Um, Currently, this show, this podcast is a standalone thing, but it is kind of shown to be published via, quote, Apple TV+. Um, So this could mean that maybe they adapt it, but I reckon organizationally, the podcast content team sits with the TV Plus team. That would be my expectation. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me. And Art19 hosts all of all Apple's, of Apple's podcasts. Yeah. So this isn't like a new strategic system, um, but it is like all those other ones where it's sort of an Apple podcast original, but you can get an RSS feed mm-hmm. of it and put it in Overcast if you want to, and that's fine. And yes, and as Zach points out which in the in the Discord, which we mentioned before, which is funny that Art19 is now owned by Amazon. Amazon, yes, it is. And so it is. our high lex. <laughs> this is we're we're going too many layers deep at this point. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this is this is notable because the stuff that Apple's done in the past around like that's not um the, like they do their news show, but like stuff like this is also has all been related to TV. Like they had that. That something line something that I don't remember which was like simultaneously a podcast and an Apple TV Plus show but this just right. kind of I mean from, from my perspective came out of nowhere it was just like all of a sudden like here's this thing that we have um, but they're continuing to move into this business too Yep. Uh, let's talk about Apple Silicon so the information published an article about uh, talking about some of Apple's next generation chip plans kind of talking about uh, what their next kind of processes are going to be. Do you want to run through some of this for me? Yeah, I mean, it's it's some of its confirmation of things that we've already heard from Mark Gurman, um, and some of it is new, and some of it is... I, I think that this report lays it out logically, even though it's not anything that's going to be a huge revelation. I think most of it is not. Mm-hmm. So it mentions that there are going to be second-generation chips, which means M2, I'm guessing, due in uh, 2022, they're going to use an upgraded five nanometer process. This is sounds like it's basically they're going to use the process they already used to make the A15. So this is essentially, yeah, there will be an M2 and yeah, it will be based on the A15. And so it will use the upgraded five nanometer process um, that the A15 uses over the A14. So, okay, great. We It tracks. It's sort of what we expected anyway, but they are reporting it as well. Um, they did report that Apple plans for at least some of these chips to feature two dies, which is interesting because it it means that you might have a situation where what they suggest is you might have some desktop Macs down maybe at the lower end that would have two M2 processors in it. And I, I don't know whether this is like, would that go in a, as an option in a 24-inch iMac or in a Mac Mini? But that's an interesting idea, right? So I read that, and I think this might be one of those things where somebody heard a thing. It's a game of telephone a little bit. Because technically, you know, if you look at all of the diagrams that John Syracuse has made and Ars Technica and stuff, right? Like the way that some of the M1 Pro and M1 Max chips, it's like it's just like two of the, two of the chip on the same die, right? Is that the way that you describe right. it? And so I think it might just be that. Yeah, I, I mean, the report, it's unclear, right? The report gives this some credence that it may not deserve, but I, I'm intrigued by the idea that one way Apple might offer um, speed improvements on lower-end systems probably as an upgrade is to, if if they could have the ability to basically put two M2 
processors down if you can think of it that way just double the core count and double the just seems so confusing and the gpu though. count like i don't from, know from like a from the way that you would talk about it you know like i mean they would say it's it, there's an 8 core and you can upgrade to the 16 core with you know with uh, 20 gpu cores or something like that but yeah. it's still a relatively low power thing i don't know i don't also, know like i mean again i don't know how this stuff works but it seems like two processors seems complicated when you could do what they've done then you have what eight efficiency cores and it's weird right yeah, it's a little it bit weird really makes sense to me fully I, I think it is that whole and david in the chat has helped correct me the two dies on the same package thing i think it's another version of that but with mm. m2 chips that that's how that reads to me i just Could be. i can't get my head around we've put two processors in this <laughs> wait why what do that's they right. do you know <laughs> like it's that, seem, that seems very strange to me i can't get my I, well I, can't I mean it gives you more cores it gives you more cores that's and and more uh, and more memory possibilities, and it might allow them to scale that product while it's still a fairly lower cost product. Um, I'm mm. open to the idea, but yeah, it is a little bit uh, baffling. Of course, you know, yeah, Mark Gurman already reported that there's going to be a Mac Pro replacement with two or four chips and 20 or 40 cores, um, and that's a sooner than 2023 was the suggestion there. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Um, they also talked about what the third generation chip. So if you, if I think this is our first official M3 conversation that we've gotten to have. So that's exciting. Oh no, <laughs> this is too soon. <laughs> uh, it, the, this report says as soon as 2023. I love as soon as as a construction, right? Because it, ba- basically it's no earlier than 2023, but might be later. So as what soon it means as 2023. is, yeah, it's 2023 and beyond. I prefer that than as or soon later. as. Like I don't, I yeah. really don't like that phrasing um i don't know if that comes from bloomberg or if bloomberg uses like because like, this is the information right but like i don't yeah. like what i don't like the as soon as like it's, everybody it's 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 almost marketing like where, where you what you really you know want to say is no earlier than 2023 or targeting 2023 but yeah. it might it might slip anyway the point here and i think this is also kind of putting together just what um taiwan semiconductor is doing um, because what they're saying here, the point of this is there is going to be a new three nanometer process that that Taiwan Semiconductor is going to do, and obviously Apple is going to do it, and they will use the third generation chips with uh, with the new process, and there might be as many as four dies, which connects to the Mark Gurman report about how they want to do this thing where they they have m- multiple uh, chips in the uh, in the Mac Pro and the high end chips, so up to forty cores per chip. Um, and then they say this process will all be also be used on iPhone chips, which is like, of course it will, right? This is the whatever it might be, A17 maybe? I don't know. Or maybe it's the A16, but it won't reach the Mac until a year later. It's all kind of speculative, mm-hmm. but it really what they're saying is obviously TSMC is working on this other a process and it's coming and the Mac will use those chips too, because of course they will. And from our conversation with Tim and Tom last week, obviously, you know, these plans exist because they're thinking many years out. So uh, yep. this information article is sort of saying, here's kind of what the roadmap is for now. Um, what I wonder is, um, does this give us a sense of what Apple would like its Mac chip pace to be? Because I think it's kind of interesting to see like, 
is there really going to be a one-to-one generational thing with the M1, M2, M3, and the A14, 15, 16, where, you know, obviously the A15 is out now and we just had the M1X comes out. But if we think of like the 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 chip year really kind of starts with the A15 and then it's in an iPhone and maybe it's in an iPad. And then next year, there'll be an M2, which is kind of based on the A15. And does it work like that where then there's an A16 next fall and then the following you know, either later that fall or the next spring, there's an M3. Is it going to be a one-to-one kind of thing? It kind of makes sense that it would. It, there are moments um, where I think, are they really going to do Mac mm. chips in an annual cycle like I they do so. the iPhone? Yeah. So I think what it will mean is they will have the opportunity to, right? But I, I can't imagine every year right they're gonna make new chips for every mac i i i mean it is hard to imagine it and yet i think to myself at some point if you're apple and you're making you're making your own chips or you're having your own chips made for you and you're looking at uh your Macs, you say to yourself well why should i keep like once the a15 is up and running I do wonder if there's a point where you say, why should I keep making the M1? Why shouldn't I just switch over to the M2? Why, don't, mm. why shouldn't I do essentially the A15 version of my MacBook Air chip? Why don't I swi- switch to that now? Because if, if the work's already done, um, and also if you would like to r- release a new model, um, but even if, which, which that's the rumor for now, right? Is that there's going to be a new MacBook Air. But even if it's just an annual speed update, if you know Intel's not your supplier anymore, I can see the argument that's like, well, once we're on A15, we should flip everything over to M2 because why would I keep making M1 MacBook Airs when I can make an M2 MacBook Air and sell it as an upgrade and it'll be more power efficient and it'll be a little <laughs> more powerful. And, 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 and then you end up in a annual replenishment cycle where, you know, it's the old speed bump thing, right? Where it's just like, well, the new MacBook Air is just using the M3 and it's a little bit faster than the M2, but I could totally see them doing that. But it it would be a change in Mac strategy for them because they have not been as focused. And the iPad doesn't do that either, right? Generally is the annual cadence is really only for the iPhone, but you got to wonder a little bit now that the chips are, are from the iPhone essentially. Yeah, I feel like the iPad is a really good uh, analogy to how I think it's going to work, where every year there's new iPads. So every year some Macs will be up, updated, mm-hmm. but it won't be every Mac every year. It will be I just, you know every Mac within an 18 to 24 so, month cycle. So here's my question, though. I, I think I think that's probably true, right? Because, you know, poor old Mac Mini and all that. But let's talk about the MacBook Air for a second. So M1 MacBook Air came out November of 2020. Mm-hmm. Rumor is M2 MacBook Air redesigned, but also using a new chip uh, spring, you know, spring to mid next year, 22. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's an 18-month thing maybe there's legacy node issues and it they wanted it to be sooner but it's not mm-hmm. um okay then apple in the fall comes out with the next iphone chip that they're going to lay everything else on so we get the a16 so now it's 2023 and the macbook air has been out for a year and they've got the a16 out there and it's on the new three nanometer process from tsmc let's say 
Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But let's just say. And you're Apple and you're looking at the MacBook Air and you're like, we haven't updated the MacBook Air in a year. This is the question I have is, do you let the MacBook Air lay there for another year or another six months or another nine months with the M2, even though you've already moved on in your iPhone chips? Do you just let it lay there so that you've got a system with a chip that is your chip design, but you haven't updated it in almost two years? I think and that's yeah. the question is, is that okay or yeah, not? Because I, think it's I can fine. see both sides. I can see both sides there. I can see you saying, well, like, but if, but if, so here's the thing. So do they forego designing an M3 at that point or do they, or do they not? Or do they say, you know, the M2 is fine. The M2 will take us for two years. Uh, you know, and the M2 may be so, the M1 so impressive that maybe the M2 will be so impressive that they're like, it's fine. Um, we don't need to bother. And, and we're going to focus on uh, our pro systems for this generation. Maybe. I, I, I think that your argument is, is perfectly valid, but I can see the counter, which is, or they could just seize complete control over their chip production line and say, every year... <laughs> We'll do A and M and M Pro. But they would never benefit from like the scale, right? Because if you continue to make M1 chips for on an 18 to 24 month period, by the time you get towards the end, you're producing them much better from an efficiency perspective. Sure. If you're true. changing them over every single year, you're not mm-hmm. getting that benefit anymore yeah and like and if you're thinking about margins you know they make more money on those machines the longer that they have them around and i just feel like it would just logistically that just seems very complicated like every single year changing it over especially when like oh well if you're not going to change the chassis well what if you need different cooling probably not i'm I'm sure that they're not going to develop that but you know what i I just think it's a lot and it's just i look at the ipad right that's what for me is like that's what solidifies it in my mind like the iPad Pro, they update it every two years, and that's fine. Like the fact that the iPhone yeah. gets a new chip every year, it for me it doesn't matter because you can't like it. it an iPhone and a Mac do different things, and like just because the iPhone gets its new chip every year doesn't mean the Mac is going to. Then no, it's not like oh now the Mac's being quote left behind like when they're so incredibly powerful already. Well, and nobody's saying the M1 Max is a, a, a an embarrassment to Apple because the A15 exists. Exactly. Right? Like nobody yeah. nobody's saying that. I I wonder if the truth is that to get all these new Macs out on Apple Silicon, there's this tr- uh, transition strategy where year one, which is M1 and M1 Pro and M1 Max, is followed immediately by M2, and that's going to generate the M2 chip that will run you know, with four in the Mac Pro, and they may update the laptops to an M2 Pro, M2 Max at that point too next year. Mm-hmm. But that the, long, the long-term plan <laughs> is to settle down. But maybe because they're in this transition now, they're going to step it up a little bit because they need to clear out everything and get everything on new yep. systems and or on new chips and yep. get the Intel stuff out. And that maybe they settle back to a cadence where the it's every other A generation is a Mac generation. Yeah, every M chip is actually every other A chip. Eventually, yeah, even that's if that's what I not, think it will end up going. Yeah, I, honestly, that's one of the things that surprises me about the second generation chips in 2022 rumor because 
and that's been a I mean Mark Gurman said I believe new MacBook Airs with a new chip coming next year and honestly I part of me is surprised that that's the case and that they wouldn't just make a new looking MacBook Air with an M1. Like well, I, to, I think that the idea is that MacBook Air will then be with an M2 for two years. For two years. But like, yeah. I think that, because it's I like, for example, right. we got a MacBook Pro a year after the first one, but like they've got to get these new designs out. And so they'll put kind of the best that they can put in that new design and then they will live for and a period of time. Let it rest. Yeah, yeah, that could be. That, that could be. I would expect. This report made me uh, have a question in my brain. The Mac Pro, right? Yeah. Will we get a third brand name for a chip? <laughs> and I was thinking genuinely, M1 Pro Max. Pro Max. I don't know. I think... M1 Max Pro? M1 Max Max. I, will there be a, a third name? Because it's not going to be the same chip, right? In theory. From a marketing perspective, at least. If, if it is truly two or four M1 Max chips, or M2 Max chips, if you want, depending on the generation, if it truly is two M1 or four, Extreme. I, I think that... I, yeah, but they could also very easily just say it's got, two M, it's got two M1 Max. It's got four M1 Max. M1 Max times four. They could just do that. They could yeah. just... It's not... Because it's not a new chip. It's four of them. In the Mac Pro... At least I, I that's where I that you know when I was saying that earlier thing about the two M two chips, I think that's too complicated. But in the Mac Pro and just the Mac Pro, I think you could get away with that. They may also just call it by cores. That's how they differentiate so many of these chips now, is just by core count. Um and so like the the CPU cores and then the secondarily the GPU cores. So they may just simply say M one max ten, M one max twenty, M one max forty core. Right, like just call it by the core count. You're right. They may just say like the Mac Pro comes of an M1 Max chip. Like that's just it, right? But it's yeah. but it starts at probably the highest configuration of M1 Max now, but then can also increase. But they're all M1 Max. Yeah, I think that yeah. M1 Max chip. I think, sorry, I forgot. It. They're all M1 uh, Max chips. But then you just M1 get the Max. core counts. With M1 Max chips. Because they have kind of run out, unless they did do, which I don't think they should, but unless they did do something like M1 Max Pro, which would be horrible. Well, they'd uh, have to do Pro Max because that's already what they have, but I, I don't think they will. I think that they've used Pro and Max and that, that it will more likely be either it comes with four mm. or it'll just be the core count, right? The, this is the 40-core version, and if and this is the 20-core version. And you mm. can also get our super awesome binned, uh, 16 core version or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't know. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Hunter Douglas. With Hunter Douglas's range of innovative window shades, you'll be able to outfit your home with fantastic fabrics and advanced control systems, helping your home become more comfortable, stylish, and relaxing any time of the day. Hunter Douglas's shades diffuse harsh sunlight, instead casting a beautiful glow across your room. With their adaptability, you can enjoy the view outside of a window without needing to give up your privacy, because there's some cool stuff there, and you'll also be able to benefit from better insulation at home, keeping you warmer in the winter, cooler in the summer, or while lowering your energy bills. And you can bring all of this together with Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology. That ensures that your shades will automatically adjust themselves to give you the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation any time of the day or throughout the day. Hunter Douglas's shades are also compatible with your favorite home automation systems like Amazon Alexa, Apple HomeKit, Google Assistant, IFTTT, and more. 
and the listeners of this show will really love to be able to automate all of this stuff themselves. So helping them integrate their shares of the other products of their home and you can get all of that control with Hunter Douglas. So you can live beautifully with Hunter Douglas, enjoying greater convenience, enhanced style and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. Go to HunterDouglas.com upgrade today to take advantage of their season of style rebate savings event. That's HunterDouglas.com upgrade for limited time savings. Offer expires on December 6th, 2021. That is HunterDouglas.com upgrade. A thanks to Hunter Douglas for their support of this show and Relay FM. Let's talk about the MacBook Pro a little bit more because yeah, it's just fun it. to talk about this computer right mm-hmm. now. Uh, you is. put in the show notes and it is really worth reading. We don't want to spoil this too much. Stephen Hackett's review of the 14-inch MacBook Pro, genius. Like mm-hmm. every every now and then like uh, someone comes across like, oh, I have a little idea. And then the way you realize that review Perfect. Basically, uh, in a nutshell, Stephen reviewed the computer as if the 2016 MacBook Pros never existed. And it's a different look. Comparing it to the MacBook Pro that looks a lot more like it in terms of ports and things, which is the the last before Mm -hmm. the USB-C switchover. That's good stuff. It's an interesting approach. What I like about the review is that it's just, it's, it's saying different things. Mm-hmm. Like he was showing some stuff to me uh, during it, and I, like I really loved it, and like I loved that it. it didn't. It's just not talking about the keyboard, like it's not talking about ports coming back, like it's just. And it almost makes me think of when you know we were talking about iPhone blips earlier on, right? Like you have this blip where like all of a sudden there's a ton of revenue, and it's like really if you just plot these MacBook Pros on a trajectory back from the PowerBook to now. Like the the 2016 era ones were just a blip where everything went wrong. But if you remove that, this one is just on a similar trajectory to what the 2015 or before MacBook Pros would have been like, and and that's it's kind of fun to look at it that way. Yeah. Now you've taken your MacBook Pro with you uh, on your little yeah trip. on this trip. Yeah. I actually had the uh, the I extended my <laughs> my review uh, length so that I could take this on this trip because I thought it would be at least a little bit instructive to travel yeah. with the MacBook Pro. And it's, you know, it's bigger and heavier than the MacBook Air that I usually uh, take on a trip like this. But it's been fun. Um, you know, it, it is it is big, although that the screen is nice and beautiful and big like it always is. But now I can take it with me and um, work from elsewhere. I, I think what I would say is it's more like my whole iMac is with me. Yeah. Than when I bring the MacBook Air with yep. me, yep. where it's not my because this is not my computer and it's not migrated from my my stuff. And I've been uh, you know all weekend I've been like oh I need that app I better go install it right. It's not migrated at all. Um, so I'm slowly kind of been adding some stuff in that I didn't need when I was using it at home that now I realize I need for whatever I'm doing this weekend. But it's been a long time since the computer that I brought with me was essentially as capable or was the computer that I use at home. Uh-huh. It's been at least since um, I w- switched to the 5K iMac, because before that, my MacBook Air was my primary for a few years. Um, and so although it was a MacBook Air, it had all of my stuff, and it was I wasn't losing capability by traveling. It wasn't greatly capable, but it was capable, and I, did, I wasn't feeling that loss. Yeah. So it's been at least since then, since 2015, 14. Um, 
something like that. So it's been a, a long time. And that's the thing that struck me the most about it is, although it is not my computer from home, it's as capable as my computer that I use every day. And that's a different feeling, right? Than having it be, well, I'm, this is the road life that I'm leading now. And that means everything's not quite as good. And yeah, the screen's not 27 inches. I'll give you that. But otherwise, I don't feel like I'm working in a you know, make do with the, a compromised device. Mm. And everybody's going to have a different feeling about that. And I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to go out and buy one of these to replace my M1 MacBook Air. I'm not going to do it. I keep telling myself that I'm not. I <laughs> look I'm in the mirror every it. time I say I'm not going to do it. Not going to happen. <laughs> no. Hey, hey, self, don't do it. Don't do it. Does somebody in my family need an M1 MacBook Air that I could hand down so I could buy one of these? No, no, they're fine. They're all fine. But, uh, but it has been, uh, delightful honestly to have such a good screen and such a powerful computer when i'm not at home yeah uh, because i haven't had that like again not like that macbook air that i was traveling with was powerful but it was always the level of performance and functionality that i expected day to day and so when i took it with me it was no change and with this uh it's the first time since then where i have not felt like I was compromising, I guess, to travel. Yeah, I uh, saying about the iMac Pro thing. Um, MKBHD published his review, and like mm-hmm. he's known for, you know, if he was going to a WWDC, an Apple event, or whatever, he would take his iMac Pro with him because the render times were that important for getting his videos out quickly. And he was saying now, like, the MacBook Pro is, is faster than that. He doesn't need to do that anymore. Now he can replace the travel iMac Pro with a 16-inch MacBook Pro. Like that's the one he's mm-hmm. going with because it's you know the fastest of the fast, right? Um, travel iMac Pro. But it's just, <laughs> it, it, uh, I uh, WWDC 20 something. I don't remember which one. I saw him. He was waiting for a taxi on his own, and he had two suitcases and a massive Pelican case. And mm-hmm. in that Pelican case was was the iMac Pro. And I've never seen somebody look more flustered than he did because yeah. he was just waiting for an Uber, like surrounded by luggage on his own. I have no idea how he managed to move all of that stuff around. <laughs> it was kind of incredible. So my MacBook Pro, a couple of other observations. I've yeah, been good. you know using it as a laptop more and, and similar to you. Like it's just fantastic. It's just such a beautiful screen. Um, I have succumbed to the screen real estate uh, i've gone from the more space i use the scaled mode i use more oh, space you've left 2x scaling behind i know i've always done more space because for me a mac laptop it's just i can't fit enough things on the screen if i use I it, it in the native uh resolution like i mean that's the one thing that i notice right going from a 27 inch imac down yeah. to this thing is that i can't do it everything's everything's really cramped and if mm-hmm. i was in a scenario where I really needed more space, I would do that. And I mean, and more space looks looks good. It's everything's a little smaller, but it, it looks but it better looks now good. than it did previously. It really does, to my eyes, anyway. But I, I can't, I just can't deal with the native resolution. It's just, it's not. Uh, I just can't get enough on the screen that I want. I get it. All of my RAM issues have been completely solved, and that's fantastic. Like, I've really been putting it through its paces, and I have not once gotten a warning that I didn't have enough RAM, which is something that would happen to my me on my 13-inch uh, MacBook Pro quite a lot. 
And I am 100% used to the size difference of this machine. Like, I don't notice it anymore. It just feels like what a laptop feels like. You know, I know mm. it's, not a, it's not a ton different, but it's just like a thing that it's not a thing at all. And I continue to just, I love the design. I love the design so much of this computer. I think it looks so freaking cool. I, I, I really yeah. like it. I get every time I uh, open it up, I'm like, hee, this is fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm big time into I just, this computer, big time. As you were talking, I switched to more space. Yeah. And now I can see the Discord and the show notes yeah. side by side. And it's yeah. like, oh, yeah. This is why I do it. I, I, I know yeah. it's not ideal, and I know people are going to be so mad that I haven't got Retina, but uh, the screen looks I great mean, it is always. Retina. It's just not. It's just scaled. It is Retina. Yeah, it's not That's the, the beauty the, of it. The, yeah, it's not the native Retina or whatever. But it, It's not native resolution 2X, right? It's it it's scaled, and so uh-huh. it's not going to be as perfectly crisp and all that, like every Apple laptop uh, up to now, basically. Yeah, it took a bit getting used to, because at first I was like, oh no, now the text is too small. <laughs> but but mm. I, I got used to it pretty quickly. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Less also, we've got a couple of th- stories to follow up on uh, around App Store legality stuff, like antitrust mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So the first is kind of not Apple, but will be probably Apple at some point, which is Google and South Korea. So you remember that the South Korean government made a ruling that to you to be able to sell apps in South Korea in an app store, they were going to require both Google and Apple to have alternate payment processes in the app store. Um, so far, Apple has kind of just waved their hand at this, which I'm intrigued to see how this is going to run. But maybe they were yeah. waiting to see what Google did. Because really, weirdly, I think this uh, whole thing was focused on Google mostly, which was always strange to me. But they called it like it was known as the Google law in South Korea. Um, so Google have published what they're going to do. And they've done a couple of things. First is they've created a user-friendly user interface for people to be able to choose how they want to pay. So you want to buy an app or you want to buy a subscription, it will pop up with Google Play always as an option and then any other option that that developer may have asked for, you know, if they're going to use like, I don't know, say Stripe or whatever for their payment processing. But what Google has done, which I don't think anyone saw coming, was they're still going to charge you as the developer but they're going to reduce their fee by 4%, which they say should be enough for payment processing. Might not always be, so you could end up paying more money overall, depending on the size of your transaction. So you can use whoever you want to process the payments, but you still have to pay Google. I... I expected this move, but I expected this move from Apple. And in fact, at one point, there was a... Some sort of maybe testimony where Apple described a scenario where they said, "How would we get paid?" Yeah, if we yeah. can't get paid by taking our percentage for all of our largesse and providing a development platform, again, it's that it's that Apple argument that we want money from developers because we give them the tools and we give them the platform, which is true. But again, we have talked about how developers and their apps also provide fundamental value to apple's products that they sell and that apple has decided that's not good enough and they also want to have a tariff on all of the money that developers make okay so they said this and they said well you know we could do that but then we need to make our money somewhere else and here google walks in to korea and says all right just to be clear here because because you may have heard it and you may not have understood it i'm just going to say this again google says okay if you don't use us, 
you don't, we won't take our 15% transaction because you're not using us for payment. However, because you're using Google Play, you owe us a percent of the transaction you make independently. That's what they're saying. They are saying because you use Google's APIs, Google's operating system, which we give away for free and everybody gets to use it, because of all of our largesse for developers, um, if you're not going to let us take a cut right on top of our payment system, we'll let you use a third-party system. You still got to give us our cut. Uh, and we'll make it a little bit less than it normally was because we know you actually need, and for, for eBooks and stuff, it's a little bit less than that even, but it's still, you got to give us our cut. And so the argument here is basically you can lose us as a payment processor, but you cannot escape the money you owe us. And that sounds so much like something Apple would do. Mm-hmm. And look, Google did it. Google went first it's incredible, and did it. Really? Like it's genuinely incredible because y- if you did find and replace Google for Apple, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. That this is just not, I honestly, I was expecting Google to just be like, okay, but I think for them, like when the more I thought about it after reading this was like, well, they do offer sideloading, right? So it's like for Google, yes. it's like, well, you can just do this other thing if you want to. And I think in the in Ben Thompson's daily update, he made a good point where it was like, clearly developers don't want to because they yeah. just will oh, do clearly. that, right? You want to be in the Play Store. And Google's done lots of stuff in the last few years to make the Play Store more um, enticing, like I noticed mm-hmm. this recently when I was in the Play Store, you get points when you download apps and stuff, and you can use those points for money off apps, right? So you get like loyalty points, basically. Stuff that Apple doesn't have to do because they're not competing against anyone for stores, right? But Google maybe feels that they want to do these kinds of things to just make sure that people stay in the Play Store. But something also to know is Google also recently reduced their fees for basically every type of subscription-based payment in the App Store. They're all at in the Play Store. They're all at 15% now. Some mm. media services can qualify for 10%. This is like eBooks and streaming music because right. Google recognizes that the margins are smaller and there are no earning thresholds or anything. So um, I, I, I think that there are some instances where just consumables, I think, may, or like uh, uh, upfront purchases can be a bit smaller, but don't quote me on that. But basically, yeah. Google is pushing towards 15%. But the idea being that if you said, hey, I want to use Stripe for processing, uh, Google will say, well, we expect 11% of that back. Yeah, so, so here's what this means. This means that everybody who thought alternate payment processing meant getting away from giving up 10 or 15% or 30% or whatever of your revenue to the platform vendor plus credit card transactions, um, they're saying, no, it doesn't. It doesn't actually mean that. This is not how you get to keep more of the money for the software you sell Um, because the platform owners feel like you thought you were getting, you thought you were paying them a percentage in exchange for being on their store but what they've decided is that you're actually paying them embedded in your revenue. You're paying a fee for being a developer, for having on iOS, you know, having Xcode, having, you know, whatever the App Store infrastructure is. That's and, and Google's equivalent. That's what they're yep. saying is, is that the thing you thought was just us skimming off the top uh, more than we take in credit card fees was 
actually us taking a, charging you a fee for being a developer and using our platforms that we built and we spent money on, and so we want some of your money. Um, the fact that Google did this, I think, also shows a supreme level of confidence that while laws may control something like exclusivity of a payment system, that it's a lot harder to change the law to say that a company that makes an operating system can't charge developers a fee mm-hmm. for using it. And that they will get that fee no matter what and however they want yeah. it. And I'm not a lawyer, but I am observing behavior of large companies who have lots of lawyers. And for Google to do this, because my immediate reaction was all they're going to do, like they're, they're honoring the letter of the law without giving up any of their money or almost any of their money. And and they might even some circumstances take more money. Mm-hmm. Um, so why? So you know they're just going to make everybody angrier. And this and that may tr- be true, right? Like this is an environment where everybody's grumpy at, at tech companies. But when you think about it a little, it really feels to me like this is a a move where they are supremely confident that it that they're not going to that they can be required to do things like allow competition for payment services but that what they're not going to be legislated into abandoning is their fee to developers that they charge for using their platforms. Yeah. That that's a different thing and that it got tied. We've been all viewing it as one thing. And, and I think they did too, honestly, they did too. But now that the rubber meets the road, they're like, Oh no, no, it's two things. things. What are you talking about? We always said this. (laughs) And honestly, even if there was a law that said, you can't tie it to individual purchases in a store. You know what would happen is, let's use Apple as an example. Apple would say, well, great news. (laughs) We're not going to charge you anything and you can use alternate payment systems. However, in addition to your annual Apple developer uh, membership, you now need to submit your revenue statement with Apple and pay a fee on your revenue. And we will audit your revenue in the app. And you need to, basically you need to pay your tax at the end of the year. Like there are lots of ways that they could do this that make it um, more onerous actually, and maybe even more expensive for developers if they have to. But it it seems like it's going to be a, at least a much tougher thing. And obviously their lawyers think it's a much tougher thing to tell a company you can't charge people ever for using your stuff. Your operating system is essentially a public utility. Um, so yep. uh, that, that's, I, I, I'm fascinated by that. So, so this, is, this is a power move by Google and ultimately will probably be by Apple to basically say, um, if, if the only way that you're going to be able to throw the book at us is limited competition and not charging a fee, then sure, have competition, but we got our money either way. Okay. And and so I, I cannot imagine that this won't be where we'll end up with Apple too. This could be like as well what they've done here is their opening, you know, and they, they may get they may get requested or forced to tweak it. Like the one thing for me that is I think a little questionable and does reduce any kind of benefit to developers is the fact that the Google Play is always a payment option. 
Mm-hmm. Right, that it's not actually possible for a developer yeah. to opt out of that. Well, that's the sign in with Apple move, right? Which yeah. is like, yeah, sure, you can you can offer other logins, but you must also offer the platform mm-hmm. login. And Google make a compelling reason, you know, like they can't confirm that uh, mm-hmm. they're going to be able to do parental controls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but what this does is reduces basically the reason for a developer to do this uh, alternate payment thing to zero. To you know, zero. Because if you had your own, if you were just using your own payment system, even though Google is still going to charge you, there could be benefits to it. Like now you just have one payment processor that you use, right? And it all goes to one place and it may make other cost savings for you as a business, depending on your size, for just managing all of your payments going to one place. If you have, say, Android and iOS apps might make it easier to confirm uh, payment and subscription status and all that kind of stuff. But if you always have to have Google Play as an option, like I don't know why any user would decide no. to choose the other option. And so then it's kind of like, well, now we're just adding unnecessary complexity into the whole thing, so we're not going to do it. So, you know, I would like to see that not be the thing, right? Like from a developer's perspective. But from a user's perspective, I don't know. I also just feel like, I know what Google's saying, like, oh, there's no way, there's no possible way for parental controls to be, like, you could make an API and, you know, like... Right. You could, right? Like, currently there isn't. You have no interest in doing it because you're putting resources towards something. But that actually, it goes back to what I think is the fundamental thing here is the only danger, and their lawyers obviously think it's not much of a danger, and I think they're probably right. The only real danger is being told, hey, Google... Oh no! I just set off a bunch of Google Home. There things. you go. No, no, it's fine because it's okay. That's it's okay. Oh, oh okay. It's okay. Hey, Go- it's okay. Actually, maybe they changed that. Maybe they added that. I don't know. Let's do this again, <laughs> Mr. Google. I know that you have no reason to want to put a lot of extra effort into building an API for parental controls, so that you can have people use third-party payment systems with parental controls. But we're now legally going to make you build an API specified in a law. It's going to be real good, folks. If it's in a law, that's going to be a really good API. Um, you have to do it, which means we're now at the down at the level of literally telling you how to use your employees. It actually brings to mind the, was it the FBI Apple thing where they're mm-hmm. like, you need to hire, you need to make employees available to us to do this. And they're like, you can't tell us as a private company that we need to hire a bunch of people to do a thing for you to do work for you. Um, this is similar to that in the sense that it's basically saying, is a law going to say, Google, you need to do this thing. You need to build an API. You have to do all this because we we have decided that the government and the laws are going to control what you do with your code and your operating system that you built and that you own. And I think that it, it, there is a risk here, but I understand why you might do an analysis and say, ultimately, it's unlikely that a government is going to declare Android or iOS a public uh, a public benefit that uh, is controlled by the public and that the corporation that built it can't run it anymore. Especially since 
um, there are there's competition at least between the two giants. That's also their biggest risk, right? Their biggest risk is that a company comes in and says, "Guess what? iOS now belongs to the people, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Google Android belongs to the people, or Google Play belongs to the people." And what Google is saying is like, if uh, Epic wants to take all the money, that's fine. Build your own damn operating system, but this is ours, and you pay us if you use it. Um interesting thing because practically you can't practically it would be very hard to do that to build your own operating system uh and have it be successful in any way they want access to the people who are using google's operating system and apple's operating system and i see the argument that it's a what monopsony the idea is these two players and they're skimming all this money out of the market but i do think that there's the counter argument which is it's their private property. They built it. They do get to decide what they do with it, and they do get to profit from it. And I, if I look at what Google's move was in Korea, that's what I take out of it, is they seem to be very confident that there are limits to what a government is going to tell Google to do with its operating system. And so, you know, th- here, here you go. Here's your competition. We don't lose any money. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Capital One. Have you ever hit a technical glitch when shopping online? Maybe filling out extensive payment fields was enough to give you a headache. On your mob- or maybe your mobile banking app was down when you really needed it. Capital One believes everyone deserves better banking. That means easier access to their tools and more security. That's why Capital One is investing in machine learning. Machine learning allows Capital One to do things like fight fraud with random forests, with models that quickly detect suspicious activity and make it faster to alert federal investigators. And they can identify how mobile app outages happen with casual models because they use anomaly detection and incident response to help determine why app outages happen so engineers can quickly remedy them. Capital One also speed up online shopping with machine learning at the edge, which makes shopping with virtual card numbers smoother and more secure. The technology is based on logistic regression models and running inference in the browser, and and it identifies payment fields, which help make using virtual card numbers easier and faster. All of this stuff sounds so good to me. Like, I love the idea of machine learning and artificial intelligence stuff making things like banking easier. You know, like, I feel like it's one of these areas where technology can move slowly in. And I love that <laughs> Capital One is really pushing this stuff now. Spoken like a man with experience working for a bank. <laughs> <laughs> The potential of machine learning is so big. See how Capital One is using machine learning to create the future of banking at CapitalOne.com slash ML. That's CapitalOne.com slash ML. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Our thanks to Capital One for their support of this show and Relay FM. Let's do some hashtag ask upgrade questions. First one comes from Stepan, who asks... Two part, just a two part question. Part one. Mm, okay. Do you use or plan to use any of the Apple iCloud Plus features? And also, do you use sign in with Apple? If it's actually a three part question, this is part two B. If yes, do you <laughs> hide your email? So, so iCloud mm. Plus features. Where do I fill in the uh, bubbles on this? And then who do I send it to with the multi part? 
to me. Question. I, iCloud Plus is just paid iCloud. So the yeah. answer is yes, I use uh, I use the extra storage. I don't use the uh, private browsing at this point because it doesn't, or the, what is, what is it called? Magic. Uh, private relay. <laughs> Magic tunnel. Private relay. Sure, yeah, whatever. Forget? I don't. I don't use that because it doesn't it doesn't work right. Like I, I tried it and it didn't work right and it slowed everything down and things were incompatible and so I'm not using it right now. Maybe I'll turn it on later. Um, but I am using all that. Uh, iCloud Plus is literally it's just you're paying for stuff on iCloud and I I have the two terabyte plan so I am using uh, a lot of iCloud uh, Plus storage. But that's about it. Well, they also have the like when you die thing, right? That's part. Oh of it. yes, coming this fall. We're all dying this fall. <laughs> you're in eminent, uh, Yeah. Sure. And also Great. they do the uh, hide my email and custom email domain. This is all part of iCloud yeah, Plus. Too. I'm not using any email related things for Apple. Yeah. As for signing with Apple, I have used it with some things. And where I really have used it is there's like a, an app that I want to try. And they're like, oh, you need to try this app. You need to sign up for an account. And I'm like, oh boy. And I have you sign in with Apple for those with the hidden email address so that I can basically treat it as a disposable account if I yep. don't want to ever tell them who I am and I can turn off that email address and say goodbye. Um, I like that. I like not having to give them my email address right away. I have also used it with some stuff where I ended up uh, going with it. Um, my problem with sign in with Apple is that you get your accounts can often get in a very weird state where Apple kind of owns your account a little bit and some right. web apps are better than others at like, yes. can I change my password exactly. so, so that I can just log yep. in normally and not use sign in with Apple? And some of them do and some of them don't. And honestly, I get so used to using autofill passwords and stuff that I get to, there's one in particular, the the web alternate reality game, Blaseball, uh, where I set up a, a, a sign in with Apple account along when it announced. And I still look at it and play it and it's fun um but every time i go there i'm like oh right and i have to click sign in with apple and then i have to put in my mac password in order for it to log me in and it only logs me in for a certain amount of time and i think to myself i regret <laughs> using sign in with apple because i'd rather have it be like everything else that i do what where sign in with apple is great is if you're on an ipad or an iphone and it can just do like face id mm -hmm. and sign you in like when it works super smooth it's nice but honestly, I sort of have decided I, other than for sort of throwaway, I don't want to commit stuff. I don't use it because I'd really rather have my account be normal and be able to have control over it. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. So I use all the same iCloud Plus features that you and do do and don't do. Uh, sign in with Apple. I do really like it, but I have hit this. I hit a thing the other day where I signed I used sign in with Apple. It's like, oh, great, because I would prefer to use it. Similar to you, it's like, I don't know if I'm going to want this in the long term. I don't know if I want this company to have my email address. And so sometimes I hide it, but not always. Um, it's like, oh, this is nice and, and easy. But then I thought to myself, if I need to sign in with this and sign in with Apple isn't working, my account does not exist. Because what I want Apple to do with sign in with Apple is to surface a password that I can get in the passwords section of the settings, right? So, like, if I had to sign in somehow, can I get a username and password that I could use if sign in with Apple was broken somehow? Because otherwise, I have this account. Mm. I, I, me, Mike Hurley, I do not own 
the the username and email and password for that account. Apple has right. it. Right. Apple does it. Yeah. Why can't I have it too? Right? Like why can't you put it in the passwords section of the settings app or system preferences? Like I would also like to have it. I don't have it. And I find that to be odd. Like I just used sign in with Apple to create an account with a government website, which I thought was awesome because I could use that. But then as soon as I did it, I was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't have the password for this account, right? Like I don't have it. I, I have to use Simon with Apple, which is probably going to be fine. But what if it isn't fine? Right now, I don't have that anymore. Similarly, the thing that I wanted to mention, and look, we're all friends here, all right? So just, okay. My logging in to my Mac password is not as good as my 1Password password from a strength perspective. Right. And I expect that now I've said that, about 95% of our listeners have gone, oh, yeah, because now where you like keychain is so like and the password app is like so ingrained, it is really easy to sign into stuff in theory with if you had physical access to my Mac compared to if everything was in one password. Like my one password password is really complicated. My Mac password, not so much. Because in my mind, as it's always been in the past, well, all my passwords are in one password, and you can't get to those. Now that we're also all saving things for autofill more because the passwords functionality of, of um, uh, on Mac devices and on iOS devices has gotten better. So what I thought the other day is I would like to set a more complicated password when a password is needed for autofill. There's something that I would like. That is what I'm throwing out there to Apple's passwords team. If you are asking me to enter a password for autofilling, I would like that to be a much larger password than the one just to get into my Mac with. So there you go. And for all the people that think they now need to tell me I need a 25-character cryptographic password to sign into my Mac, thanks. I don't want your feedback, all right? Yeah. We're all cool here, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that would be their argument, I think, at Apple, too, would be you need a stronger password for your Mac. I know. But then I would also ask what they use, because <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that most people are in a similar boat to me. Ecomony asks, how frequently do you raise and lower your standing desk? It varies. My standing desk is basically a, a seated desk. It can, but I, I very, very ever rarely. I sit by default, and then I have. I feel like I want to stand, and so then I stand for a while, and then, and then, and then I need to feel like I need to go back down and sit for a while. So I'll do that often. When I feel like I need to stand, I actually just go and in, out into the other room and write on the iPad at the at the bar in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and I can do that sitting or standing. But I usually stand. Um, so I often will just move, uh, but it, it happens. It happens when I'm, you know, maybe my back hurts or something like that, or I'm just uncomfortable or I've been sitting all day and I want to do something different and then I'll, I'll pop it up. Uh, I have a little preset button and it just goes up and it's great, but um, mostly it's sitting. And Andy asks, I've heard Mike and other podcasters talk about using their MacBook Pro in clamshell mode of an external monitor. I'm just curious, why do you keep the lid closed? Why not keep the laptop lid, lid, laptop lid open and use it as a second display? Does leaving the lid open cause issues? So I can answer for me. I can't answer for other people. My physical desk space 
means that the laptop really can only fit underneath the display and the display is not high off high up enough off the desk to have it open. I also don't like having two keyboards in front of me like mm. and two trackpads because I use external keyboards and external trackpads. I find it to be neater. Also, I have a 31-inch display. A 14-inch display next to or underneath the 31-inch display to me just looks really weird. Like the size difference is so massive. So for those reasons, it's not needed. And also, I have a 30-inch display. I do not need a second 14-inch mm. display. I don't. I don't feel like I need that um, in those instances. So they're all the yeah. reasons that I do it. I don't know why everybody else does it the way they do it. It's awkward. I used to have a uh, stand from Ergotron. I want to say at work at IDG. That was, I had my Apple display and then the stand was, um, I think it was the, the display was on the stand on an arm or like a mount, a vase mount. And then there was a tray basically with, for a laptop. And it was, so the, the idea there was for, to do just this, which is run two monitors. And so it was much higher up. And it was sort of wider open so that the screen was was uh, kind of taller, right? Not, like not at an angle where you'd maybe type on it, but mm-hmm. at an angle for display purposes to try and sort of get rid of all of the length of the keyboard and trackpad that pushes the screen further back. And with all of that, and I used it that, that way for a while, for maybe a year or two, it was awkward. I mean, it was weird and awkward. Um, that second display really did become kind of just a garbage place for secondary stuff because the first display was so big and the other display was so small that um, I, I, you know, I tried it, but it only really ever became kind of an ancillary thing. And then I didn't use it enough for it to make sense. And then I ended up just running it mostly in clamshell after that. So I, I think that's the truth of it is the laptop screens are so much smaller than external displays at this point and ergonomically um, to contort your laptop into something so it looks like a workable second screen i don't know it's it's a tough one so that's what i think is mostly it's a nice idea but then you when you put it in practice you're like I, i'd really rather just have one display or even really rather have two displays that are that fit together and are going to be uh, similar sizes i like multiple displays like as a thing i just don't really like laptop displays as my second display because it's like usually it's a very varied in size and so i i just don't like having the keyboard and the trackpad and all of that there in front of the display it kind yeah. of tends to mean that either the display is further away than you would mm-hmm. want it to be or now i have like another and also then i find myself like even though i have one keyboard in front of me like reaching over to type on the other one sometimes and then that's not so good for ergonomics like so i just like to keep it uh that laptop just keep it closed yeah if you'd like to send in a question for us to answer on the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, or you can use question mark AskUpgrade in the RelayFM members' Discord, which you'll get access to if you sign up for Upgrade Plus. Go to getupgradeplus.com, and you get longer, ad-free episodes uh, every single week of Upgrade. So you get bonus content and no ads. Go to getupgradeplus.com and sign up. Thank you so much to everybody that has. Also, thank you to Capital One, Hunter Douglas, and Amazon Music for their support of this week's episode. But most of all, thank you for listening. If you'd like to find Jason online, go to sixcolors.com, theincomparable.com, and Jason hosts many shows here at Relay FM, as do I. You can go to relay.fm slash shows and pick out something new to listen to. Jason is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. I'm at imike, I-M-Y-K-E, and we'll be back next week. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, Mike Hurley.